Do you guys hate it when you go for a drink and the drink ends up not being the drink that you thought it was? You know what I'm talking about? Like where you, you think you're going to get like Sprite, but it's water. It's like weird because you love Sprite and you love water, but it's like because your brain was expecting the Sprite, the taste of water is repulsive and you just completely spit it out and you're just grossed out and disgusted by it. Uh, it also it reminds me of the story of um, a time that I got pranked pretty badly um, by some people that will remain nameless, but they might be here sitting in this circle. But basically, wow, how do I even tell this story? It's just, it's just so bad in so many ways. So I was at the school back when I volunteered as a teacher at the school, and you guys know my office used to be over by the bathroom, Calvary Vista, Calvary Christian School, and um, it was a good time, it was a different time, but I was in the staff lounge with a couple of students at the school, who shall remain nameless. Uh, no, it wasn't you, James. I mean, Sam, sorry. <laughs> it wasn't you either, Sam. And anyway, so I, 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 was, offered, I was offered some coffee. And I don't normally drink coffee, but they were like, the, the students who gave me the coffee, they were like, oh, this is really good coffee. And I was like, okay, and I'm, I'm a trusting guy. You know, I like to think the best of everybody. So what I didn't know was, okay, so there, this is kind of gross, but there was, a, there was a, a lady at the time who was pregnant. And as so, she was getting some milk ready <laughs> for her baby <laughs> and freezing it in the staff lounge fridge. Breast milk. It was like a year old. They put it in the coffee and gave it to me. And I drank it. And then they told me it was breast milk and I spat it out because that was disgusting. Thank you, Rachel Cobian and Becca Cobian. You guys are so cool. Yeah, I, it was pretty bad. It's kind of what we're talking about tonight. No, we're not, not, not that kind of milk all night. Don't worry. We're not... We're not going there. We're, we're, okay, we're in a series called Christian Atheist. It's all going to make sense eventually. Bear with me. We're in a series called Christian Atheist. And if you missed the previous weeks, you might say, well, okay, what does that mean? What's a Christian Atheist? Well, think about it. What's an atheist? An atheist is somebody who does not believe in God, and therefore, if someone does not believe in God, how are they going to live? Are they going to live like God exists? No. They're not going to live like God even exists. So... And that doesn't mean that atheists are horrible people, by the way. I know some atheists who are very good, people who contribute to society, and they're awesome people. They just need Jesus. They need you to get saved. But right now, we're talking about a Christian atheist. So what is that? It's a made-up term, but I think it's a relevant one. A Christian atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if God does not exist. They believe in God, but they live as if God has no existence. We've been doing this for two weeks. This is week three. Week number one, we talked about those who believe in God, but they don't know him. Week two, we talked about those who believe in God, but do not fear him. Next week, we're going to talk about those who believe in God, but do not trust him fully. People will say, I believe in you, but I'm not going to give you every error of my life. I'm not going to trust you fully. But today is honestly my favorite message in the series, and it's kind of the most hard-hitting one. It's people who believe in God, but they don't really want to go overboard. They say, I believe in God, but I don't want to be one of those Christians that are kind of fanatics, like a Christian who's really all into it, a Christian who's sold out for Jesus, crazy about all that gospel stuff. I believe in God, but I don't want to be one of those people who take it too far. In fact, today we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. So if you want to get in your Bibles and look at the book of Revelation, we're in chapter three. 
So I want to give you guys the context for what we're going to read about in Revelation 3. Um, In the book of Revelation, Jesus actually wrote seven letters to seven churches, or he wrote one letter to seven different churches. So just to kind of give you an idea of what that looks like, um, how many of you guys are with us on Sundays when we're going through the Gospel of John? Yeah, a lot of you guys. Okay, so on Sundays, obviously, we've spent a year looking at Jesus's life. Jesus lives for 30 years as this Jewish man. And then in the last three years of his life, once he hits his 30s, he says, I'm the son of God. I'm the king of kings. And he starts his mission and this movement like totally sparks around him. A lot of times today we see movements starting with hashtags and people in the streets. That's totally what this was. This was a movement. Like if, if Jesus was around today, he totally would have had a hashtag. I don't know what it would have been. Hashtag Jesus has already been used a ton. But it was this kingdom movement of people who believed in Jesus and said, he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He's the son of God and the kingdom of God is here. It was this, it was this crazy movement where they spread healing and love and justice and basically Jesus saying, I'm welcoming you to be a part of the new humanity, to ex- receive me into your life and let me change you from the inside out so that you can have a relationship with God. It was, just like, it was this thing that the world had never seen before. So what happens? We just finished it, um, the, the cross message. Jesus dies on the cross. He's brutally murdered. Everyone thinks the movement's over. We had a great three years. This was amazing. And now Jesus is dead. But then what happens? The resurrection. Jesus comes back from the dead. And people realize the movement of the kingdom is so much more than they thought it was. Jesus wasn't just there to become their king of Israel. He was there to become the king of the world. He was there to raise us from the dead. He was there to give us a new life. He was there to make a way for us to have an everlasting heavenly connection with God. And one day... His resurrection will completely renew everything and we'll see heaven the way that we've always dreamed of seeing it. So what does Jesus do afterwards? He goes to his brothers, he goes to the 12 disciples and the many, many followers and he gives them the great commission. He says, go and preach the gospel. Go and spread this kingdom movement to the whole world. Every nation, people are gonna hate you, people are gonna despise you, but you go and you take this mission to every corner of the world. So they start out in Israel, their home base and they're preaching and they're starting churches and then we meet a guy named Paul in the book of Acts and Paul, he actually started out as this Pharisee who went around killing Christians but God knocks him off his donkey and radically changes his life, rocks his world, and shows him who Jesus is. And so Paul actually becomes one of the biggest leaders of the Jesus movement. And what Paul does is Paul travels not just in Israel, but he goes to the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew here, you're a Gentile. That just means someone who's not a Jew. So Paul starts going to all of these other countries like Rome and and Greece and Turkey and Syria and all these other countries. And he starts forming house churches, kind of like what this is right now. This This would be considered a house church, what we're at right now. Paul went and started a bunch of multi-ethnic communal house churches where people would get together and study Jesus and learn to walk with Jesus. So now we've got all these different churches formed. So there's seven churches that are written to in Revelation, and these would have been churches started by the disciples or Paul. So John recorded these letters, and to the six churches, Jesus actually said something different to all of them. He would usually say something about how good they were doing. He'd say, hey guys, you're doing great. Let me tell you what, you're, let me tell you what I appreciate about you. But then he'd give them a word of correction. Well, there was one particular church that he didn't even give them any compliments. He just went straight to correction, and he spent the whole time telling them what they were doing wrong. 
That's the church we're gonna look at today. It's the church of Laodicea. So let me give you guys a little bit of history of Laodicea. Um, Laodicea was a very wealthy city in the Greek Roman Empire. It would be in what we'd call now the, the country of Turkey. And in fact, 35 years before this letter was written, Laodicea was destroyed by a massive earthquake. But these people in Laodicea were so wealthy that after their village was destroyed by an earthquake, they actually were able to build their entire city back up better than it was before. That's how how much money these people had. In fact, they were known for their massive theaters, huge stadiums. They had these weird public bathing areas, which were really popular at the time, kind of weird. And then they had massive shopping centers. So imagine someplace like Vegas, like I don't know how many of you guys have been to Vegas, but uh, it's just out there in the middle of the desert, but the city kind of pops up. Or maybe a better example would be Dubai. Have you guys ever heard of Dubai? Uh, it's this crazy city where basically there's like roller coasters inside of buildings. That's how, how wealthy and affluent the people in Dubai are. So back to Laodicea, during this time, it was that type of city that was massively wealthy and they had everything you could imagine that you'd want to live with. And this is why Jesus said to this very wealthy, very blessed group of people in Revelation 3.15, read it with me. Revelation 3.15, he says, I know your what? What does he say? Anybody reading it? Are you guys just listening to me? Read the Bible with your own eyes. I know your deeds, works. Yes, thank you. I know your works. He said, I know your deeds, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. He says, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are, and then he says, what? I will spit you out of my mouth. Oh, lukewarm, sorry. <laughs> um, he's, I got ahead of myself. He says, I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are what? Lukewarm. Because you are neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, he says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then verse 20, Jesus extends the most amazing invitation. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and I, and I say, and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they will eat with me. And Jesus talking to the people of Laodicea says, I know your deeds. He says, Not that I know what you believe, but he's saying, I know how you live. I've seen how you live. And there's a difference. How we live actually reflects the true reality of what we believe. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm not just talking about how, what, how you say you believe, but I see how you actually live. Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. Now, who's heard this passage before? This is a really common passage that comes up in the church. Uh, uh, I've heard that you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and so I spit you out of my mouth. So what does hot mean? Anybody? Like, if, if, if we're to apply this message and try to take meaning from it, if, if he's saying I'm, you're either hot or cold, I would rather you either be hot or cold and not lukewarm, what would hot be? And, okay, that's a literal hot. But, like, spiritually, what would hot be? Anybody? Like... The, on fire. There it is, right there in the fire pit. So I'd rather you be hot, on fire for the Lord. What about cold? What would cold be? Uh, a, Satanist. a Satanist, like just not a Christian at all, right? But you're lukewarm. What's lukewarm? Lukewarm's kind of that Christian who's on the fence, someone who doesn't really want to commit to Jesus. Okay, so hot, on fire for the Lord, cold, not a Christian at all, or lukewarm somewhere in between. That's where what I thought the passage meant until recently. Um, and that's kind of weird, right? 
Isn't it kind of weird that Jesus would say in a letter like, hey, I would rather you be on fire for me or like a total atheist and not even saved than lukewarm. Isn't that kind of interesting if you think about it? Like, why would Jesus not want someone to be saved? Like, why to Jesus would someone being lukewarm be worse than someone going to hell and not being saved at all? So here's the deal. I recently read a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, and it actually opened up my eyes to the actual meaning of this passage. Because here's what we do a lot of times as Americans, we read a book. Okay, was the Bible, like, was, was uh, the letter to the church of Laodicea, was it written to 2016 Americans? No. Yes, God wrote the entire Bible to the entire world, but when, when a letter is specifically written in the Bible to like a town, a church in a town, it wasn't written in our lingo, in our language. So the readers in John's day, John's the one who wrote the book of Revelation, Jesus wrote it through John. The readers in John's day would have understood hot, cold, and lukewarm differently than we understand hot, lukewarm, and or cold. Hot, cold, and lukewarm. They would have understood it completely different. There was a cultural context written into the story. So who is this church written to? Laodicea, remember, a wealthy church in the Greek and Roman Empire in the country of Turkey. So what's interesting is if you study Laodicea, you'll notice they had some challenges getting water brought to them. Their town, it was difficult to flow water into the town. So they had these long underground pipes that they would ship the water in from hot springs or cold springs. What they wanted to do was to get the water there fast as they could because they didn't have microwaves and they didn't have refrigerators. These were wealthy people and they wanted to have their water their way, kind of like us. We want it and we want it our way and we want it now. So for these people, they actually had something that a lot of people in those times didn't have, hot drinks and cold drinks. Just like today, many of you guys are here drinking a hot drink that was boiled in a kettle. Some of you guys here might be drinking a cold drink, and if you are, it's insane. that's insane because it's so cold outside. Why would you do that? So they had these religious festivals, and what they would do is they would serve drinks before the people, and, and, and they would bring them these drinks. And if you were an important person, if you were a noble person, if you were a wealthy person, if you were considered the highest person in society, you got your drink first. So you would get either a hot drink or a cold drink. You would actually be able, in Laodicea, in this ancient city, you would be able to order a hot drink or a cold drink. But if you weren't so important, if you were just a commoner, if you were just a peasant, then you would get a drink that had been sitting out just in the hot sun, not hot, not cold, lukewarm. So that's, that, that's what Jesus is getting at when he uses this language of, I would rather you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. What he's not saying is, you know what, I, I would rather you just be unsaved and going to hell instead of a Christian who's not serious. No, when he's talking about hot and cold, he's talking about these things in positive ways. He's saying, guys, a hot drink is awesome. It warms you. A cold drink is refreshing. I would rather you be hot or cold, but lukewarm is garbage. Lukewarm is not good for anything or anybody. He's saying, I'm the king, and you're giving me your worst. Think back to the story of Cain and Abel. What was the deal with that? You guys know that story, some of you guys in the Bible. You, you've got one guy, um, Abel, the good brother, and he sacrifices his best lamb. Then you've got Cain, and he sacrifices vegetables. Now, God gets mad at Cain. Why? Is God like a carnivore and he hates vegetables? He's like, Cain, why would you give me vegetables? No, no. Abel was a sheep farmer. Or is that, 
Is that? Uh, yeah, no, that, that works. A shepherd. Thank you. That's what I was going for. He was a shepherd. He grew sheep from the ground. It was different back in Genesis. Um, no, he was a shepherd. And Abel was a farmer. Abel grew vegetables. The difference was Abel gave God his best. He gave God the very best that he had. Cain gave the leftover scrap vegetables. So that's the thing we're looking at here. God is looking at us. He's looking at Laodicea and he's looking at us and he's saying, I am the king of the world. I could just be up in heaven. I could be off in some distant parallel world punishing you all for your sin. But I came to this world not to be your king in the sense of, hey, I'm cracking the whip and I'm your master and you guys need to serve me and be my slaves. I came to be your friend. I broke down the wall of the separation of the world. I broke down the wall of sin so that we could have a relationship. Why are you being lukewarm towards me? Why not give me your best? Why not be hot or cold? I would rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. It's kind of like coffee, right? Hot coffee, good, right? Anyone like hot coffee? Yeah, it's good. Cold coffee, iced coffee, who likes it? Anybody? Yeah, it's good. Coffee that's been sitting out for seven days? No, really, really bad. That's, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, don't give me your worst. Don't give me your leftovers. So verse 16, let's look at it again. He says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to do what? He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now the word spit comes from a Greek word that's used only once in the entire Bible. It's ameo. And this little word means more than spit. It means vomit. It means utter rejection. It means just being supremely repulsed. Just just. Like if you have a bad egg salad sandwich and it's rotten, what does your body do? It rejects it and then it ejects it. And you know it comes out of somewhere, but your body wants to get rid of it. That's what our bodies do. Our bodies reject things. And when our body rejects things, they come out. What Jesus is saying is when you don't show any passion at all, when you are apathetic, when you're complacent, when you're comfortable in your pursuit, Jesus says, I can't stomach that. I reject it. I'm repulsed by it from the deepest part of me. I cannot tolerate that. And I want to vomit that out. I want to spit it out and spew it out. I am completely, supremely repulsed by this. That's heavy stuff. I mean, I seriously am one of the biggest fans of Jesus being like this loving teacher. And he is. Jesus showed us God's character in a way that no one had ever shown before. He showed what God is really like, how God is loving and patient and kind towards our sin. But here he uses some strong language. He's looking at this church, this, these people in Laodicea who claim to be Christians, and they came to church, and they claim to practice the way of Jesus. And think about that. When somebody is a church in a town, people are looking at that group of people saying, they're the Christians, So you've got this group of people saying, we're the Christians in this town of Laodicea, but they had no passion for God. They didn't care about God. They didn't care about repenting from their sins. They literally just showed up to church and that was it. And God, Jesus looked at that and he says, listen, I love you obviously, but the way that you're acting, it makes me want to throw up. And that's that's gnarly, like that's gnarly for me to even say. Like I'm uncomfortable saying this, but it's in the Bible. How many of you guys know what an oxymoron is? What is an oxymoron? Something that contradicts itself. It's when you take two different words that are opposite and you put them together, an oxymoron. Like act naturally. Act naturally is an oxymoron. I can't even talk. Oxymoron. Genuine imitation. Uh, Diet ice cream. That's an oxymoron. It's not even good. It's not even worth it. 
I got this like coconut kind. It was so bad. I wanted to throw up after that. Uh, jumbo shrimp, oxymoron. Pretty ugly. Yeah, he's pretty ugly. Is he pretty or ugly? He's pretty ugly. Uh, found missing, airline food, government efficiency, and Microsoft works, right? <laughs> Buy a Mac. So anyway, listen, perhaps the greatest oxymoron in the history of the world would be the lukewarm Christian, the lukewarm disciple of Jesus, the lukewarm follower of the Son of God, lukewarm Christians. So what's a lukewarm Christian? Well, we could talk about all sorts of different ways to describe it, but let's look at seven signs of the lukewarm Christian. And we we could literally do 70 signs of the lukewarm Christian, uh, but just to keep it simple, I chose seven things, what, what I consider to be some of the most common issues of those who are lukewarm. Chances are, When you see these different qualities, you might think, I know somebody who is like that. They believe in God, but they don't really want to go overboard. But some of you here, you might, if you're really honest with yourself, go, oh, shoot, that's me. I'm the lukewarm Christian. So what are some of the qualities of those who would be lukewarm Christians? So the first one is, if you're taking notes, it's they crave acceptance from people more than they crave pleasing God. Paul in his letter to Timothy said, in the end days, there will be people who are lovers of themselves. And guys, we live in a super self-driven, self-centered, selfie generation. It's constantly, do you like me? Do you you approve of me? Do you like my shoes? Do you like my Instagram? Do you like my snaps? Do you like my hair? Do you like my house? Fill in the blank. And I'll give you another angle. Uh, Sometimes it's, we, we go, please approve of me. Please like my picture. Please tell me that I fit in. And sometimes we might even say, hey, if you don't like me, maybe you've said this to your friends. Maybe you haven't said this with your words, but you've said it with your actions to your friends. Hey, listen, if you don't like me, I'll change my morals to your morals because I want you to love me and I want you to accept me. And I see this happening all the time. I see students doing this, students with really no actual strong allegiance to Jesus Christ, that they are willing, even though they've grown up in a Christian home, even though they know what's right and wrong, depending on what group of friend they're with, they are willing to completely change those beliefs, to completely conform. When they're with church friends, they act this way and they don't do these things and they they do these things. And when they're with another group of friends, they completely change and they're completely opposite. There's no kingdom mission on their mind. There's no idea of I am here as a representative of Jesus Christ to preach the gospel to the lost people around me with my actions and with my words. No, it's I just wanna live for myself right now. Jesus actually said this. He said, be aware when all men speak well of you. What Jesus meant is if everyone speaks well of you, you're not really following Jesus. And yet so many of us, without even knowing it, we're so truly living for the approval of people rather than living for the approval of God. A lukewarm Christian craves the approval of people more than the approval of God. Secondly, a lukewarm Christian rarely shares their faith in Christ. They rarely talk about the goodness of God with other people. Why? Well, so many reasons. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be awkward. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be offensive to people. Honestly, I would argue at the heart of it, it's because we don't really believe the power that the gospel transforms lives. We don't really see Jesus as king. Jesus is someone that we learned about in Sunday school. Jesus is our get out of jail free card. Jesus is our ticket to heaven and the reason why we can go on sinning in our life today because he'll forgive us in the end anyway. It's false. 
if we saw Jesus, listen, if we, if, if Jesus hadn't come yet and we were just a group of people that got together for, I don't know, like a chess club or something and we met in our backyard and we talked about chess and then Jesus came down from the sky and floated in our backyard and, and healed one of you guys from a sickness that you had and like, let's say Josh had a broken arm and Jesus like touched it and all of a sudden it's like totally fine and functioning and like even more muscular than it already is and just, you know, like what if Jesus started doing those things and then Jesus started healing our relatives who were sick and then we started going down to the beach with Jesus and he was like raising people who had drowned from the dead. Like, and we saw these things with our eyes and then Jesus said to us, I am king. Like, it doesn't matter who's president of America, who's queen of England. I am king of the world and I am here to save the lost and now I need you to go tell people. And then we watched Jesus die. We watched the government capture Jesus and put him in an electric chair and we watched the switch pole and Jesus electrocuted to death. And then three days later, we saw Jesus come back from the dead. Don't you think we would, like, would we just go on with our lives? Would we just be like, I'm just going to live the way I've always lived? No, we would, I mean, I would hope, I would hope that myself and you would drastically change some things about our life if we saw these things happen in front of us. But we didn't see those things, did we? No, it's written in a book. It's written in a book. And sometimes because of that, especially for those of us who've grown up in the church, it can become a distant thing that seems like it's a far off reality a prequel to a movie that's gonna come out one day when we get to heaven. But this is what we're called to live into now. Because if we really believe this, if we really believe that Jesus is king and that changes everything, then we'd get over our fears and we'd pray every day that God would help us to share our faith so that we'd have the fullest of everything that Christ wants us to have. But we don't do it. Jesus was very clear about this. He says, if you confess me before men on earth, I will confess to you before my father in heaven. But if you do not confess me before your people on earth, I will not confess you before my father in heaven. Again, another uncomfortable verse to teach. Not fun for me, but true. Now what the Bible isn't saying is like, if we had street witnessing at a high school group and you were like, I have other plans and you don't come, then you're going to hell. That's not what it's saying. But what Jesus is saying is if you live your life in a way where your Christianity is completely hidden to yourself and there's no desire to share it with anybody and it's basically just, thanks for getting me out of hell, but I'm not gonna let anyone know I'm a believer, there's a chance you might need to inspect your heart because perhaps you're not truly a follower of Jesus if that's the case. Lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith. Number three, Lukewarm Christians rationalize their sin. They rationalize their sins. We live in a day where literally people rebrand and rename sin so it's not bad. You know, adultery is not adultery now. It's an affair. Sounds so much better, doesn't it? It's an affair. Pornography is what? It's adult entertainment. It just sounds so much better, doesn't it? Profanity is adult language. Hey kids, when you grow up, you can drop the F-bombs, but you're 12 now, so you can't drop it. You ever had, I've, I've heard adults say that to get, you can't say those words now, but when you get older, you can talk that way. When you're an adult like me, then you can use adult language. We rebrand and we rename sin. So what do people do? Well, it's, we do this because it's easy to say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, I've got these sins, but it's not as bad as their sins. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. Who are you to judge me? Stay out of my life. Stay out of my business. This isn't hurting anybody. It's just my thing. And we rationalize sin all day long. Number four, the lukewarm Christian thinks more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. They're consumed with life on earth and not the future destination that we all have. I've said it before, Obsessing over this world, as, not as in obsessing over impacting this world for good, but 
obsessing over making our time in this world better about getting more riches or more comfortability or more popularity, it'd be like if you had a mansion promised to you. If someone said that you are going to move into this mansion with like a billion bedrooms and it's going to be fantastic and everything you love is in it. And right now you're in a garbage can, but at the end of a couple of days, you're going to move into this mansion. And what I want you to do is I want you to find every single person in the dump I guess in this illustration, you're all grouches from Sesame Street. So you're living in this dump with Oscar. And it's like, you're going to move into this mansion. For the next four days, I want you to just tell everyone in this dump that they can go to the mansion too. All they have to do is accept the invitation. What if you spent those four days like bedazzling your trash can? Like trying to make, like just bejeweling it, going down to the mall and getting those tacky little jewel stickers and just totally blinging it out and in, installing a little uh, antenna and a little tiny TV, TV set in your trash can. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? When you're going to the mansion, like what are you doing blinging out your trash can? Go and tell other people. You know what Paul said? Paul in the Bible said something crazy. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Listen, He's saying to be on earth right now, to live, is it, it's, it's to be a representative of Christ. It's to tell others about Christ. But to die is gain because I go to heaven and that's so much better. That's a big gain. When I die, I am going to heaven, which is going to be not fluffy cloud land off in the sky, but the kingdom of God realized on a new earth which is going to be so fantastic. I'm so excited to be in an earth without limitations, to finally be able to surf 100-foot waves or even like one-foot waves for me because I've never surfed a wave. So it would be fantastic like to skydive and not have to worry about like hitting the ground and, and dying. Like no limitations, like perfect world, no crime, no poverty, no racism, no adultery, no divorce, no homework. It's going to be awesome. It's going to rock. I'm so excited. King Jesus the kingdom finally realized on earth. It's going to be fantastic. Are you excited about this? Because what do we see on earth now? We, we see people saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I'd rather be 105 and wear diapers than die. And that's, that's what people are doing now. We're obsessed with prolonging ourselves, living longer, looking younger. We're consumed with this earth. It's all about the things of the world. I need more things. I need more things. We're in love with the things of this earth instead of the God who created everything. Lukewarm Christians are more consumed with materialism and with this world than they are with the eternity to come. Number five, lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. And they will turn to God, but when will they do that? Is it when things are going really good? Because when things are going really good, who needs God, right? The weather's great. I'm popular, my grades are up, nobody in my family's fighting, we've got money to pay the bills, everything's good. And then all of a sudden, somebody gets cancer. So we pull God out of our toolbox, our spiritual toolbox, and we say, oh God, I need you now. Somebody in my family has cancer, we need you. And then we pray, and then, oh God, chemotherapy worked, so we don't need you now. And then we put God aside, and everything is good, everything's good, everything's good, I don't need God right now. And then all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, I failed a test, and now my parents are (laughs) mad at me. God, I need you to get through this time. Or, oh no, now I I got caught sinning. Man, I just, I got caught by my parents. I got caught by my teachers. I'm exposed. And so, no, oh God, I need your mercy. We believe in God and we'll use him for our benefit, almost like going to a vending machine and asking, what do I want from God today? We'll use God for our benefit, but we're not in a daily relationship with him because a lukewarm Christian will call on God only when they need something. Number six, the lukewarm Christian will give whenever it's convenient. 
And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time, your abilities, your talents. I'm talking about giving as in serving in ministry, as in helping your parents around the house, as in like loving your teacher enough to be the student who pays attention in class and actually like writes a thank you note to your teacher for all their hard work. But as Christians, a lot of times the lukewarm Christian will only give whenever it's convenient. I'll give if I look good. I'll give if I can post it on social media. I'll give if it doesn't affect my standard of living. I'll give if it doesn't make me less popular. I'll give if I want to, but oh gosh, don't you dare ask me to do something that I don't wanna do. Don't push me, why? Because this is my stuff, my money, my things, my, my, my. The the committed follower of Jesus realizes, guys, it's God's. It's all God's, everything, our talents, our gifts, our time. But the lukewarm Christian says, me, me, me. And then when when people confront us, we say, I don't wanna talk about that kind of stuff because that's my business, not yours. Stay out of the subject. Number seven, the lukewarm Christian, honestly, they're not that much different than the rest of the world. They're not much different from other people. Let's be honest, the lukewarm Christian watches the same movies as everybody else, listens to the same music as everybody else. And don't take that wrong. You guys know me. I'm not one of those guys who says, if you're a Christian, only listen to Christian music and only watch Christian movies because there's only like, what, 20 of them out there? So like we have to function in culture, but there's certain music and certain movies that we know if we listen to and watch, they can corrupt us because of the content in them. The lukewarm Christian just takes in the same media as everybody else without even a thought about what does this do to my soul. The lukewarm Christian uses the same filthy language on social media as everybody else. Like what's the whole deal with this whole like as F thing? Like everyone's doing that now. Like, that doesn't even make sense. It's just like, like, find a better metaphor for how cool something is. We don't have to join in with what the world is doing. We have the same morals as everybody else. Uh, the lukewarm Christian looks at porn just as much as everybody else. They, they sexed just as much as everyone else. They lie to their parents just as much as everyone else. Why? Because they're just like everybody else. It's called comfortable Christianity. It's comfortable. It's, I want all of what God has for me, but I don't wanna follow what he has for me to do. I want enough of Jesus to get me into heaven and to keep me out of hell, but not so much of Jesus that it makes me into one of those people that are fully consumed with all of this Christ following stuff. Jesus calls this kind of person lukewarm and it makes him want to vomit. He can't stomach it. It repulses him. One of the reasons I can kind of pinpoint with some accuracy what a lukewarm Christian is is because there have been times in my relationship with Jesus where I have been very <coughs> lukewarm. Okay, this isn't just a message of me yelling at you. I've been lukewarm in my life. Listen, I was on fire as a kid. I was that kid in children's ministry who every single worship song, I was standing with my hands raised as high as I could raise them, singing off key at the top of my lungs. Not because I wanted to impress people, but because I truly loved Jesus. As I went through junior high and high school, I struggled with sins, but I never walked away. I never had a season of rebellion where I did my own thing. I always wanted to follow Jesus and love him and serve him. And then I went on to Bible college and I was volunteering in the youth group and doing all these things. And then I got hired at the church as a pastor. And I thought, oh, this is my dream come true. I get to serve God in full-time ministry. And I just visualize this is gonna be amazing. Bible studies every day. And we're gonna walk in and the holy music is going to be playing and the presence of God is gonna be swirling all around Calvary Vista. And my Bible will probably like hover up on my desk and my sermons will magically write themselves and people will be loving and nice because church people are always nice and loving, right? But I didn't realize it was a job. I realized it was actually, it was a job. And, and, and you know, it was work and it was hard work. 
And at times in the early days, what happened to me tragically is I let, I let the ministry work replace my relationship with God. There's a quote by this guy named Bill Hybels, and he said, the way I was doing the work of God destroyed the work of God in me. And honestly, guys, sometimes in those early days as a junior high pastor trying to figure things out, I felt like that was happening to me. The way I was doing the work of God destroyed the work of God in me. Sometimes, honestly, I would only read the Bible just to teach and not to actually have a relationship with the Lord. One of the biggest issues for me was realizing that I never shared Jesus with anybody. And that hit me hard. That hit me really hard because here I was a pastor in a church and some of you guys have heard this story before, so forgive me if I repeat myself. But for those of you guys who haven't, as a junior high pastor, we had gone through the Gospel of John, just like we have now. And we've gotten to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is all about preaching the Gospel. It's all about sharing Jesus with other people. And so I got ready to start teaching this book to you guys, some of you guys here who were in junior high. And it's all about just be bold, go and share, go tell people about Jesus. It's going to be hard. It's going to be terrible. So I'm here, this you know, 20, early 20s uh, junior high pastor, and I'm getting ready to tell you guys to go out and proclaim the gospel. And then Jesus was like, Aaron, you don't do that. And I was like, what are you talking about? I do that every week. I'm a pastor. I teach. And the Lord was like, Aaron, you are a Christian who grew up your entire life going to a Christian school, going to a Christian youth group, going to a Christian church. You never really went to concerts. You never really stepped out into your comfort zone. You kind of were a homebody and locked yourself in the room all the time. So basically you were at home and at church 24-7. And then you got a job at the church as a janitor and then a graphics designer and then a pastor. But you've just been at the church this entire time. And I was like, but I still preach the gospel. And the Lord was like, yeah, you talk to Christians about their Christianity, but I called you to preach the gospel gospel and to go and make more disciples. And it hit me so hard because I realized that I never do that. Like I I never did that. And the Lord rocked my world because he told me, like, if you don't do this, you need to teach something else, like teach a different book. And so it began for me, this journey of going and sharing the gospel with people. And that's another story from another time. But I mean, I spent probably about seven or eight months where pretty much every weekend I would go down and try to share the gospel with people at Oceanside, Encinitas, Vista, Carlsbad. It changed my life. Honestly, like there has not been anything in my life more significantly like spiritually effective than putting myself out of my comfort zone and telling people about Jesus. And it was so beautiful because there were times where people were like, I don't want to talk to you. Get on my face. And they'd cuss me out. There were other times where people got saved. There were other times where like people didn't get saved, but I could tell that God was doing a work in their heart. And then we as a group started to go out and we started to share the gospel with people and people got saved from our youth group. I, I still talk to Hagen who got saved down in Imperial Beach from that day that we went down there. And we almost didn't go down to Imperial Beach. It was too far. We were like, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to Carlsbad. But the Lord led us there. Guys, what I'm trying to tell you is, you know, going back to that moment for me, when the Lord showed me that I was not doing what I was called to do as a Christian. Yes, I was a pastor, so I thought I got a free pass. I work at a church, so obviously I'm doing what God wants me to do. What God told me was, Aaron, you've become a full-time pastor and a part-time Christian. A full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Jesus. That was so hard for me to hear. Maybe that's hard for you to hear right now. Maybe that phrase hits you right where you are. Maybe you feel like, you know, I've become a full-time athlete and a part-time follower of Jesus. Maybe you're like, I've become a full-time boyfriend or girlfriend and a part-time follower of Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're a full-time student and a part-time follower of Jesus. For me, when it came to the mission of the gospel, I woke up at that moment and I realized that I was a great oxymoron. I was a lukewarm Christian when it came to evangelism. I was not hot and I was not cold. I wasn't pleasing God 
involving the work of spreading the gospel, which is the Great Commission. It's not just something that we can ignore as Christians. Like, oh, that's for the evangelist. That's for Billy Graham. No, he said to his followers, you go and make disciples. And I just, I didn't want to do it. But when I started to do it, my world was changed. Guys, we need to run from comfy, cozy Christianity. But tragically, that's where so many people are. I've been down to the Bible Belt in Oklahoma uh, to visit my wife's family. And I've just interacted with people down there. It's crazy in the Bible Belt. Everyone's church people out there. Everyone just like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. But I've talked to people who are like literally talking about how they're living in sin. Like, and unashamed, just like, yeah, it's a part of my life. But they say they're Christians. Sometimes when you live in a place like the Bible Belt, it's hard to actually be a real Christian. It's, it's just easy to kind of conform and say, yeah, I am one and not really live as one. But you know what? It's not just the Bible Belt, guys. It's here in Southern California. Because think about it. Southern California, this is where the Jesus People Movement happened in the 1970s. If you don't know your church history, like this is like Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa and some of these other churches, like the Jesus Movement blew up in the 70s. And now we have here sitting in this room or this outside area, myself included, we are the generation of the children of the Jesus people movement. We're kind of like the children born in the wilderness. You know what I mean? With, with, when you've got Moses and the Israelites who were in Egypt and they knew how bad things were and then God freed them and God showed them his miracles. But then the kids are born and the kids are like, I don't know what Egypt is about. Like, I don't know what that's all about. Like, what, what the heck is Egypt? Like, I just know I'm out in a desert and it's hard. It's, it's hot out here. Some of you guys are in that place. There's a church in every corner. There's a Calvary Chapel in every town down here. It's really easy to just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But are we really, truly living it out? Here's the good news. The good news is there are places all over the world that when you are a follower of Jesus, it means something because it costs you. It would cost you your job. It would cost you your reputation. There are places in the world right now that it could cost you your head. There are places in the world where you could literally be decapitated for following Jesus. It could cost you your life. And as horrible as that is, there's almost a blessing in that persecution because when we are persecuted, the church becomes stronger. When suddenly, even in my part of the world, uh, as it started to become a little more difficult to be a Christian, and, and it really hasn't become that difficult, really. But I've started to see a little bit of persecution here in the States, not that much, but just the little threat of it, it's caused some people to really have to make that choice, saying I'm in or I'm not. When you're in, you're in, and when you recognize what Jesus really did for you, it means something, and you can't be lukewarm. Guys, there's Christians in Syria where when those Christians who are fleeing ISIS because they're threatening to murder their entire families for being followers of Jesus, when those people say the name of Jesus, it means something. When they meet another brother or sister in Christ, they're not fighting with them because they need them to survive. They realize, like, it's, it's so silly. We're so spoiled. Guys, we're so spoiled nowadays. It's like, if if you go to a youth group nowadays and you get in a fight with someone, you can just leave and go to the youth group down the street. And adults do it too. We get in fights and we leave the church and we go somewhere else. In these other countries, it's like there's one church in the area and like everyone has to get along because you're trying not to die. That's what the early church was like. Maybe for us, we could focus a little bit more on striving for unity, on trying to work through our differences, on, on trying to get along with one another and not just run away from confrontation as it becomes even more difficult, because guys, it could happen. We could face persecution in our world. We could face gnarly persecution where all of a sudden Christians are thrown in jail. We're so blessed to live in a country where it doesn't happen here, but it is happening in other places of the world. Maybe for you right now, you're facing persecution in a small way, 
by being picked on at school. Or maybe some of you guys have family members who are not Christians and they laugh at you for coming here. And they say like, what are you, why are you going to that church thing? Like there's so many better things you could do. You're trying to follow Jesus. I, I, I knew a guy, uh, a young man who was trying so hard to follow Jesus and his dad would encourage him to go have sex with girls. And he was like, no, that's not the way of Jesus, dad. And his dad would just laugh at him and say, come on, son, be a man. You guys, even though we're not in China, we're not in Syria, you are facing certain kinds of opposition. When those things happen, are you gonna run from it and run into compromise and sin? Or are you gonna turn to the Lord? Are you gonna make the choice? Are you gonna say, yes, I do believe and I want to fully commit my life to the one who gave it all for me? When Jesus was saying these words in Revelation, he was talking directly to a culture that's so similar to ours today. Worldly, wealthy, theaters, shopping centers, stadiums. Guys, we have so much. We are literally the most like material, materialistic generation of all time. Not only do we have a ton of things, but we take pictures of them and, and post them to show people how much stuff we have. And then we get jealous because I don't have his hair or her, his girlfriend or, or his boat or, or her house or her clothes. We live in a culture of constant comparison. But you know what Jesus said to those people in their materialism? He said, yes, you say I'm rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those are bad places to be. None of us want to be wretched. None of us want to be pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. None of us want to be that way. That's a, that's a bad state to be in. Here's a quick question. Was he talking to Christians when he wrote this book? When, when he wrote this letter to Laodicea, was he talking to Christians? He said lukewarm. He didn't say lukewarm Christians. We added that phrase later. We, we say that phrase, lukewarm Christians. He's talking about those who are lukewarm. Were the lukewarm followers of Jesus or not? You, you tell me. Here's what he calls them. He says, you're wretched. That doesn't sound very Christian-like. He says, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. About right now, if God is doing what he does so lovingly, there are those of you here who are feeling the gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and you're recognizing, maybe I believe in God, but I don't really truly know him because I'm not fully committed to him. I know about him. Maybe you even go to Bible class at your Christian school. But do you know him in the way where he has said to you, this is the mission I have for your life and you've accepted it? Not just thanks for getting me out of hell for you, Jesus, but I am committed to follow you. If you're here today and, and you're sensing that you are the lukewarm Christian, just like I myself have been at different times in my life, what do you do? Let me tell you, it's really simple. You open the door to your heart and you invite Jesus in. It's literally that simple. Open up the door to your heart and say, Jesus, come into my life, come in now. Because that's what Jesus said in verse 20. Look at verse 20, he says, he said, here I am, I stand at the door knocking. He says, knock, knock, knock. I'm here at the door. If you'll open up, I'm ready to come in. If anyone hears my voice, hey, it's me, Jesus. I love you and I want you to come in. I gave my life for you. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I love that Jesus's invitation is an invitation for dinner because I love eating with people. Like for me, like, like when, when someone asks me out to lunch, it's like, oh man, I, I love this person and they love me. Like we are gonna get food. We are gonna eat California burritos. It's gonna be awesome. Jesus looks at you and he says, no matter how backslidden you are right now, no matter how lukewarm you are, 
I'm here, open up, let me in, and let's go fellowship together. Let's eat. You don't have to get cleaned up first. You don't have to make your life perfect first. You don't have to make things right first. No, you let him in and let him change you. You let him in and you let him impact your life. Jesus, come in. Jesus, come in. Jesus, come in. That's what you say. Jesus, come in. And this is what he does. He comes in right as you are and he loves you because that's what he came to do, guys. He accepts you. He doesn't leave you there. He transforms you. And suddenly your sins are forgiven and they are no, you are no longer the same. You become a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and, and everything becomes new. Those are those of you here right now, Listen, hear his voice, hear his voice. Let him in, he is knocking. We don't even have to do like a time of like, does anyone want to raise their hand? Like right now, right now, you can just like literally in your heart decide to let him in. He's knocking, he's knocking at your door. He's knocking and he simply just wants to come in. If you hear his voice and open up your life tonight, Jesus will come in. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You can have a saved soul, but a wasted life. You could have said the prayer and now you're going to heaven, but Jesus is not really dwelling in you. If that's you, man, that's a bad place to be. Save soul, but wasted life. Listen, open the door and let him in. For those of you who say, well, I've done that. I mean, I, I know Jesus, and, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, but I'm comfortable right now. Like, I, I did. I said a prayer at camp once, and, and there was a time where I really got on fire for Jesus. There was a time where, you know, I was witnessing, and I was just loving Jesus. I was honoring my parents. I was worshiping, and I remember at camp, I'd get emotional and cry because my heart was still tender then, and, and right now, it feels like I, I, I just have this heart of stone, and there's no emotion or anything, and, and you know, maybe that's you right now. Maybe, maybe for you right now, maybe at one time you were on fire for the Lord, but right now you feel complacent and comfortable. What do you do? Let me tell you. Let me tell you what we do. Guys, when, when I was a kid, I remember when my dad came home and he opened up the door, I would run to him. Like, my dad was awesome. He would just throw his arms open and I could just run up. Amanda too, we'd, we'd just run up and we'd give him a big hug and we'd realize he loves us and his love for us is unconditional. Even if we messed up that day, even if you know, mom called and said, when dad gets home, like you're gonna be in trouble, like we could still go to him. We could still receive love from him. We always knew we could go to our dad. Here's what you do. If this is you, you recognize Jesus is still there and you just run to him. And that's what you do. You just run to the Lord right now tonight. That's what you do. You just decide tonight, Lord, I'm gonna pursue you. That's what you do. You just tell him, Lord, I want you. I wanna be close to you. I need you. Because when you seek him, you will find him. That's what the Bible says. He has not left you. Some of you guys feel like he's far away. He didn't leave. You did. He has not left you. He is there and you just need to run to him. What do you do if you recognize that you don't know him tonight? You just listen for that voice and you open up your heart to him. For those of you who do know him, but your love has grown cold, what do you do? You run to him today because your heavenly father loves you and he loves when his children come to him. He's ready to embrace them and therefore you pursue him because when you know who he is and you know what he has done, then you crave acceptance from him and you don't need acceptance from this world. Suddenly, guys, when the Lord really takes hold of your heart, you share your faith with others because you know that Jesus came to give 
live life and life more abundantly and you know that in him through the cross there is the forgiveness of sins and suddenly uh, that you recognize that what you own is not your own and you see it as a tool, your, your gifts, your abilities, your talents, you see it as tools and resources for God's kingdom and you don't rationalize sin, you confess it quickly and you repent from it and you ask the Holy Spirit to transform you. Why? Because you're being conformed into the image of Christ. You don't live for this world because this world is not your home. You're an ambassador of the highest ranking official sent by God from heaven to this earth. And you're on a mission and there's no part of you that will cause God to throw up because you're on fire. You're a pleasing hot or cold drink. You're on fire and he loves you when you pursue him. So tragically, we live in a world where there are many people today who are comfortable in their Christianity. They say, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't wanna get serious about Jesus. I'm not that born again type. I'm, I, I'm you know, I think we just need to get past that. I've said it a million times tonight. If that's you tonight, we just need to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done. That God became flesh in the person of Jesus and gave his life so that we could live. Jesus is saying, listen, if you really know who I am, your only reasonable response is to accept me and totally commit yourself to me, all of me, because Jesus gave his life for me and for you. So we need to choose to give our life for him, to say, Lord, I'm all in. There is going to come a time, mark my words, when you're gonna have to make the decision, either you're in or out. Those who are following Jesus, they will be strengthened if they choose to truly commit themselves to him. To say, I'm gonna follow him with all of my heart, all of my life, because he gave his life for me. Jesus, we love you so much. And God, oh man, I've struggled so much with this in my life, being a lukewarm Christian, pastor's son, working at a church. It's so easy to grow complacent. It's so easy just to settle into comfortable Christianity where we view you as our genie in a bottle and it's just all about what are you gonna do to bless us? But Lord, that's not what you saved us for. That's not what you've called us to. You've called us to live a life that blesses others, a life that reaches to the farthest corner of the world with the love of the gospel, a life that serves, a life that forgives, a life that humbles ourselves, a life that loves, a life that sacrifices. Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who feels lukewarm, I pray that you would help them, Lord, to just light themselves on fire tonight. To not do some dramatic Christianese thing, but to just simply get with you and one-on-one tell you what they need to say, confessing their sins and committing themselves to follow you. And then Jesus, I pray that if they make that decision tonight, that you would help them to find people who can hold them accountable to it. Counselors and friends who are gonna be able to ask the tough questions. How are you doing? How are you doing with that sin that you're struggling with? How are you doing with preaching the gospel? How are you doing with honoring your parents and obeying them? How are you doing? God, we, so many of us, we don't have true community. We don't have anyone in our life we can answer to because we live in the most disconnected culture of all time. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to completely surrender to you tonight. And as we sing this last song, God, I pray that you would do something in our heart. I pray that you would touch our hearts, connect us with you in a way that maybe we haven't connected in a long time. 
God, if there's anyone here today who just has this wall in their heart towards you and, and they just don't want to let it down, they're, they're, they've hardened their heart, maybe it's because they don't want to give up a certain sin, maybe it's because they're scared of what might happen if they truly commit themselves to you, maybe it's because you, they feel like you've hurt them or you've let them down. God, I pray that in this brief moment you would break down walls and you would tear down barriers and that you would, through your Holy Spirit, reach into the darkest places in our hearts and show us your love and help us to fall in love with you. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. I pray that you do your work right now. In your name, amen.